0: Hey, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are continuing on in our series, The Gospel and Godliness in Accord. What God does when he brings gospel and godliness in accord in a person's life. Today, specifically, we're going to be homing in on what the apostle told Timothy as he was leading the church at Ephesus about how women could fulfill that God-given role. And there's probably... um, not too many more passages in the New Testament more controversial than this one. Uh, raises a lot of anger, a lot of hackles. People don't listen, so they don't, they don't sometimes we think we hear what we hear. I want to ask that uh, before you get up and walk out angry, you might hear me all the way through. Then you can get up and walk out angry and we can talk about it. But um, this is also one of the most affirming passages for women you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. As you begin to understand how living out your godly roles is a part of God restoring the creation that was broken at the fall. It's amazing what we're a part of. And uh, we're going to be dealing with the guys a little bit today, but mostly later on on Father's Day. But today I'd like you to hear what Paul was writing to Timothy for the church there at Ephesus, beginning in verse 8. Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This whole subject of of the gospel and godliness, Paul said, is a mystery. And there are a lot of mysteries. I was reading about a lady named uh, Mary Hickey. She was telling about how she was expecting her first baby. She had a six-year-old neighbor and the neighbor girl came over was asking all kinds of questions what are you going to name it all of that stuff and then she saw my extended tummy and she said how did the baby get in there and she said well i think you should go home and ask your mommy about that and she said i already tried that there's nobody in my house who knows <laughs> <laughs> there there are certain mysteries and how gospel and godliness come together in a person is one of those mysteries And Paul is going to open that up today. Let's pray for a moment. God, thank you for the mystery of the gospel and godliness and how it is that you take the good news of Jesus Christ into a person's heart who believes and produces in there a character that looks like you. I'm praying to God, I'm praying to you, God, today that you'll give us understanding that let us have ears to hear and hearts to believe. And we'll thank you for all that you'll show us today in Jesus' name amen. In 1963, an author activist by the name of Betty Friedan wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique. The book explored what Friedan called the general state of unhappiness in many middle-aged American women. I had a chance to meet and talk with Betty Friedan in 1971 when I was part of a leadership team at Central Connecticut State. She was a nice enough lady, but it was very clear she was on a mission to change the cultural role of women in America. According to Friedan's research, a comfortable, predictable suburban life didn't give women the fulfillment they were expecting. The first chapter of her book, titled The Problem That Has No Name, raised a question that resonated with many women across the nation. Here's what she wrote. The problem lay buried unspoken for many years in the minds of American women. It was a strange stirring, a sense of dissatisfaction, a yearning that women suffered in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Each suburban wife struggled with it alone. As she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slipcover materials, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, chauffeured Cub Scouts and brownies, lay beside her husband at night. She was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question, is this all And that question led to a book that many consider to be the catalyst that launched the feminist movement in the United States. And by the time Betty Friedan founded the National Organization for Women in 1966 and the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, NARAL, in 1969, and the National Women's Political Caucus in 1971, the cultural shift of the role of women in America was rolling ahead towards change with full steam. But what's interesting is to track what happened out of that just 30 years later, in the beginning of the 2000s. The satisfaction women were expecting to get their so-called day in the sun was not turning out to be satisfactory. In fact, by 2003, even left-leaning publications like the New York Times did a cover story written by Lisa Belkin entitled, Why Don't More Women Make It to the Top? and the subscript in bold letters gave the answer, they choose not to. And what followed was a 10,000 word essay on how many women were opting out of the workplace to take on more traditional roles at home. Joel Belts, writer for the World Magazine, commented at the time, "Miss Belkin argues that the barriers of 40 years ago are down. And points to the fact that women are as likely to be in the majority as in the minority in graduating classes. At schools like Yale and Berkeley and Harvard and Columbia and Princeton. They're recruited by top firms in all fields. They start strong out of the gate. And then suddenly they stop. And what came to be called the revolution stalled. And people began to ask the questions in the early part of the 2000s, how did this happen? What went on? Joel Belts went on to say, I don't think the answer is complex. Truth, you see, is a powerful force. People can conceal reality in their lives only so long. Sooner or later, facts bubble up to the surface with an uncanny ability to grab people's attention in spite of themselves. Truth bubbles to the surface. And in many ways, that's what Paul was addressing in his letter to Timothy. Now, when it comes to addressing the roles of men and women, it's important to know that truth bubbles to the top as people begin to understand that if they really want satisfaction in life, they need to align themselves with God's truth and God's roles and God's design. It's part of what happens when the gospel and godliness come in accord in a person's life. As I mentioned, we're in a series together in 1 Timothy, and this passage about women happens to fall on Mother's Day, a very affirming passage, because it's talking about when the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and God's unfolding redemption story comes together in a person's life and begins to produce the very character of God himself, that there is in that accord... That gospel and godliness, a transformation of a life. The gospel and grace can come together in accord in anyone's life, in all kinds of people. Even in a person like Paul, as we learned, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. The worst of sinners, he said. And that's why Pastor Phil related last week in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7, That we are to pray for and share the gospel with all people, for God desires all to be saved. And Phil did a great job teaching us last week that all doesn't mean every individual, but it means all kinds of people, regardless of their race or their gender or their economy or anything else. God desires them to know him, and he's going to bring people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue to believe in him. So we are to treat people without distinction. Men and women are equal. The races are equal. The economies are equal before God in their standing. Men and women are equal before God in their standing, but they have different roles. So Paul tells Timothy, because we are to pray for all kinds of people, because we are to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, because this is a good thing and pleases God our Savior, because he wants all kinds of people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, because there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, because he gave himself as a ransom for all of us, because Paul was a faithful and true witness appointed by God to deliver this message with all the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because of all that, Paul says in verse eight, therefore, in light of all of this, This is how men and women are to live. And over the next few chapters, he's going to unfold this. He begins with the men in verse 8. I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. We're going to be dealing a lot more with this, Lord willing, on Father's Day. And we come to the section where he addresses the men. But he begins by saying, in light of all this, I want men to be pure. I want their hands to be lifted up to God. I want them to be surrendered to the Lord. I want them to be the godly leaders without disputing, without angering over all these distinctions. I want them to lead the way. Then to the women, lessons that hold the key to blessing that are so foreign in our culture, most women react in resistance against the very thing God's trying to tell them to help them, to experience the kind of satisfaction that can only come by following God. God brings the gospel and godliness in accord so women may glorify him through the blessing of a godly life. And how will God be glorified and the blessing received? Paul tells Timothy, when a godly woman lives more concerned with her inner character than her outer appearance, and when a godly woman lives more concerned with fulfilling God's design for her than the world's design for her, when the gospel and godliness are in accord, a godly woman will live more concerned for her inner character than her outer appearance. Paul said in verse 8, therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up Holy hands without anger or disputing, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. You have probably heard that there is a war on for women, but it's not the one you expect. The real war that's on is called the war of body hatred. I was reading an article by the National Eating Disorder Association who was telling that the average woman in America today sees about 3,000 ads a day. Whether it be on television, whether it's in a magazine, a newspaper, whether it's on the internet and the things that keep popping up on your screen, or whether it's just simply walking down the aisle to buy some shampoo and you see all the array of these beautiful women on the covers of everything you're supposed to be buying, they are inundated with 3,000 ads a day. Many of which, they said, send messages about what the ideal female body should be like. But 98% of American women, they said, are not as thin as the fashion models who supposedly have the right body type. The average American woman is 5'4 and weighs 165 pounds. The average Miss America winner is 5'7 and weighs 121 pounds. Which is why it's not surprising then that 42% of first- through third-grade girls want to be thinner. 81% of 10-year-old girls are afraid of being fat. 70% of 18 to 30 year old American women don't like their bodies. 60% of women in middle age still remain unsatisfied with their bodies. 50% of girls use unhealthy weight control behaviors such as skipping meals, vomiting, and taking laxatives. Nearly 20 million women will suffer from an eating disorder at some point in their lives. Timothy Willard and Jason Losey wrote a book called Veneer. And in that book, they argue that contemporary American culture often values image or appearance over depth of character. They write, embarrassed by the scars of our humanity, we try to hide our brokenness. We use a veneer to cover ourselves, hoping others will perceive us as having greater worth, as being more beautiful and perfect than we feel inside. And guys, sometimes we don't help with this. Sometimes we don't help with this. Intentionally or unintentionally, we often send messages that we're more concerned with how the women in our lives look than we are with their character and the person that God made them to be. I don't have time to develop all these things, but I can tell you when guys come to see me and talk about their struggles with pornography, I'll ask them, are you married? Oh, yeah, I'm married. He said, well, look, not only are you sinning against God by doing what you're doing, but do you understand what you're telling your wife by looking at that stuff? You're telling your wife, I would rather gaze upon the airbrushed body of this deeply lost woman than I would to find contentment in looking upon the body of the godly woman God has put into my life. You guys need to understand the messages we're sending when people look at that stuff. It's the opposite of the message of God. And ladies, that doesn't mean we live like slobs and don't care for your body just because my husband has to love me. That, that's not part of it either. We care for our bodies because they are temples in which God lives. They're for his use. They're for his glory. And your bodies in many ways are a gift to your husband, the Bible says. But ladies, no matter what the media or the fashion industry or the Hollywood elites say or even what your husband or your boyfriend says or doesn't say, don't ever forget what God says he's looking for in real beauty in a woman. Paul told Timothy, in the church, God is looking for women who adorn themselves with the inner character of godliness. And that's why he said in verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. That term to dress modestly is literally to put themselves in order. It's a word from where we get our English word cosmetic. But what he's talking about is putting yourself in order with the dress of a godly character. You see, there were some women in the church at Ephesus who... um, in the church, were dressing to make a statement. They were wearing the latest labels, uh, wearing the latest fabrics, trying to look trendy, because they were trying to send a message about their wealth or their power or their position or their status. They were creating a distinction that God said you're not to make. And they were trying to draw attention to themselves. And some, by the way, they were dressing, drawing attention to their bodies. So he said tell the women to dress modestly, well-ordered. And that word modestly comes from the same root word from we get the word worldly. Dress modestly, not like worldly women, is what he's saying. And there are two aspects to this modesty, moral and financial. The Bible talks about a moral modesty. In other words, don't dress like worldly women who seek to attract attention by showing off Body parts. Ladies, you already know this, and this is flying in the face of culture, but there are certain parts of your body that should be seen by God, by you, and by your husband. Nobody else. And if you're not married, you need to understand, ladies, anybody who dresses provocatively, showing off more than they should be showing, if you're doing that to attract men, I can assure you, the only men you're going to attract are men you probably don't want because they don't have the kind of moral character you need in your life. They just don't. And there's also a financial side to this modesty. The women at Ephesus were really engaged in this. It's women who are caught up with how, you gotta have the latest label, the latest style, it's gotta be from a certain store and all those things. It doesn't. Paul said, let there be a modesty in the way you dress. Nothing wrong with having a, nice article of clothing, but don't be overly concerned with the statements you're making. I want women, he said in verse 9, to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Decency is a word that means a modesty of dress rooted in your character. In other words, I dress on the outside to reflect who I am on the inside. Propriety means literally a soundness of mind. So a woman who has a right behavior flowing out of a right thinking that keeps a godly woman from dressing or acting or speaking in a way that would be inappropriate for a woman who professes to have God in the place of ultimate value in her life. That's the worship Paul was talking about. So, he said, be careful what you adorn yourself with. The word is garnish. This is who you are, the main meal. So now be careful how you garnish that. Later, there's nothing wrong with having a new dress, getting your hair done, wearing makeup, getting jewelry on. As long as what you're wearing is to draw attention to the character within It's drawing more attention to Jesus and who you are in him than about yourself or your body. That's what he's emphasizing. One of the things I appreciate most about my wife and the daughters in my life is they're modest. Morally modest. And they are financially modest. They're not concerned about the labels they're wearing. They're concerned with looking appropriate. For a woman who wants to worship God. And I've always appreciated that about them. Adorn yourself with good deeds. Literally the good deeds appropriate for the one who exhibits godliness. Be known for the action of character that flows from your life. Good deeds that makes the invisible God in you visible. Do you remember Solomon? Solomon. He had three hundred wives and seven hundred concubines in his harem. He said in Proverbs eleven, verse twenty-two, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Or Proverbs thirty one, thirty, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And not only in her concern for inner character rather than outer appearance, but when the gospel and godliness are in accord, a godly woman will live more concerned with fulfilling God's design than the world's design. Paul put it to Timothy like this in verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. Let's close in prayer or we can leave. <laughs> <clears throat> Have you ever noticed men and women are different? <laughs> men and women are different. Um, I was reading a journal entry that was published by Lee Eckloff. He's a pastor from Vernon Hills, Illinois. Here's two journal entries by a husband and a wife, same day, same events. Listen, Listen to what they wrote. Her journal. Tonight my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said, I'm not upset that it had nothing to do with me and not to worry about. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly, watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep, I don't know what to do. His journal entry, same thing. Rough day, boat wouldn't start, cannot figure out why. That's it. Now you're laughing because you've been there. Men and women are different by design. Now don't miss this. Men and women are equal. Equal in their standing before God. Men are not more important than women. Men are not more gifted than women. They're all, we're all sinners. There is no distinction. We all have access to God. We can all live godly lives. Men and women are equal. But they have different roles. And those roles have been assigned by God for a purpose, by God's design. That's what Paul was addressing here. There are a few passages that cause more heartburn and resistance than this one. But in reality, if we can grasp what God is saying about his design for men and women, ladies and men can experience a huge blessing of participating with God in his restoration of the created order that was broken at the fall with Adam and Eve in the garden. Paul said, in the home and in the church, godly men and women are to live out God's design. And so here, later on, we're going to address man's design on Father's Day, Lord willing. Paul will address that with Timothy later. But here, in verse 11, he said, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. She should learn what? She should learn about God's design. She should learn about what being godly is about. She should learn more from what God is teaching than what the culture is saying. And this is what a godly woman who worships God is to do. She's to learn these things. She is to learn in quietness and full submission. The word quietness is the word for silence. It means tranquility that arises from within, causing no distraction to others. These are not loud, pushy, contentious, demanding women. Neither are they doormats, weak, milquetoast, or reserved. They are quite the opposite. These are women who have a strength of character and reliance upon God that allows her to learn and desire to learn the role that God has for her without being threatened by or run over by a man. These women are not intimidated because they know who God is, and they know who they are in him, and they know that God has a role for them that a man cannot do. And so their lives demonstrate what they are learning with the quietness of character that arises from within. They do this in full submission. Submission is a military term. It means to rank under. As a private submits to a sergeant or a sergeant to a lieutenant or a lieutenant to a captain, they're all equal in their humanity, but they have different roles. In order for order and to fulfill a mission. A godly woman a godly woman, will fully submit to the God-ordained roles of authority in her life for the sake of order and fulfillment of the mission. So she submits in the home and in the church because she is concerned with fulfilling God's created order by design and her role in it. She is patterning her life after the Godhead. Do you remember there is one God? He exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, equally God. They're all equal in essence and nature. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But isn't it interesting that the Son submits to the Father, your will be done, and the Spirit submits to the Son. So in the midst of all that equality, there is submission in the Godhead for the sake of order and mission. There's a role that each of them plays. That was to be the pattern in the home and in the church. A woman is to live in full submission to the God-ordered roles of her husband as head of the home and men as godly leaders in the church, even though she is equal to them in her standing before God for the sake of God's designed order and fulfillment of God's mission and purpose. Full submission. A woman who's understanding this will embrace this because she understands it now with joy. Now, when women hear this, many times they'll say, well, what if my husband isn't a Christian? Or what if my husband isn't nice? Or what if my husband is a real jerk? Remember, the Bible teaches clearly you're not submitting just to a man. You are submitting to God by submitting to your husband. You're submitting to the position God has designed him to hold in your life. And if he's not fulfilling his role well, it does bring extra burden to ladies, which is, guys, God, God is asking us to step up and lead. And it doesn't mean that if he's physically, verbally, and emotionally abusing you that you have to stay there and take it. You're nobody's punching bag. In fact, you respectfully should call him out on it and if you have to, get help. Report him. He's not to be treating you like that. Submission is not subjugation. Submission to a husband's authority as head of a home can be used by God to win over even an unbeliever, Peter said. In 1 Peter 3, verse 1, he said, Wives in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way he just described that Jesus submitted to the Father to go to the cross to fulfill the Father's plan. Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. You see, submission is the key, which is exactly why Men are to submit to their wives, while the wife is to submit to her husband. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. When Paul wrote to that church, he said in Ephesians 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now watch this. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. When a couple gets married, whether they are Christians or not, if they follow God's design, that marriage can be used to be a picture on earth of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. So a woman shows her submission to God's divine order and design by submitting to the headship of her husband. And a man shows his submission to God's divine order and design by loving her and giving himself up for her as Christ did the church. Now, I'm going to be honest. In the 30-something years I've been doing this with hundreds of couples, I don't, can't remember a single woman I've ever met who was reluctant to submit herself to the headship of a man who was loving her and giving himself up for her and putting her first and guiding her to a deeper relationship with God. I've never seen a woman rebel against that. So men, if your wife aren't, isn't submitting to you as you'd like her to, you might start by asking yourself the question, am I submitting myself to God and to my wife by loving her the way Christ loved the church? That's where it starts. What was modeled in the home was to be modeled in the church. And this is why Paul said in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. I don't let a woman be teaching men these spiritual principles of what they're supposed to be in leading. I want men teaching men that. They are not to be the primary spiritual leaders of men to be the spiritual leaders. Which is exactly why... You cannot have a woman to be the pastor of a church dispensing this kind of teaching to men and still stay true to the biblical design. You can't do it. They might be better pastors than men would be, but the fact of the matter is that's not the role God assigned for them for these reasons. And in our world of gender confusion, I realize how culturally counter, counterculture that is. She is not to assume authority over a man. She's not to have dominion over him. Paul said, I'm a faithful teacher, an apostle of Christ. I'm telling you the truth. This is the way God made it to work. And it has nothing to do with culture. This is not a first century thing. This has to do with creation, the way God made it from the beginning, which is why he said in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. People, how did things unravel in the garden? Eve wasn't fulfilling her role, and neither was Adam. Adam didn't fulfill his role as a husband. Eve didn't fulfill her role as a wife, and they didn't follow God's design. Eve chose to ignore her husband's leadership and instead started listening to the serpent and acting independently of what her husband said and came out from underneath that protection. She was deceived and led him into sin. But Adam wasn't fulfilling his God-given role either because Genesis 3.6 says that Adam was by her side when this happened. He was standing there watching this take place, and he did nothing. His role should have been, when he saw that lion snake coming, he should have picked up a rock or a stick or a sword and lopped his head off and said, Eve, don't listen to that snake. I'm here to protect you. I love you. I'm treating you as Christ treats the church. I'm standing in the gap for you. But he didn't do it. So humanity fell, and they fell into sin. And what God's telling them is, Timothy, tell the ladies in your church, don't make Eve's mistake. And tell the men in your church, stand up when your wife's being assaulted, spiritually and emotionally. Stand up for her spiritually. That was behind Paul's startling words in verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now let's start with what this isn't saying. This doesn't mean women are saved from their sin by having children. That's heresy. You're saved by Christ and Christ alone. It doesn't mean women who submit to their husbands and who live godly lives will never be harmed. They will be saved when they have babies. They won't die. That's not what it's saying. I want to give you three quick possibilities, and any one of these are true to the Scriptures, and maybe all three are what he's talking about. First, this could be a reference to the birth of Christ, who as offspring of the woman would be God in human flesh, the Savior of the world, so that she and all of us could be saved through the birth process that would bring about the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's a possibility. Secondly, it could be, similarly, Paul was connecting this statement with Genesis 3.15 where God said to the serpent, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. Satan is going to try to destroy the seed of the woman, Jesus, but the seed of the woman, Jesus, is going to destroy him. Yes, Satan will inflict a wound. He's going to die on a cross, but he won't stay dead. He's coming back again. He's going to raise victorious, and he's going to destroy Satan and his power. And that's going to come about through this God-man Jesus who, born through the woman, will be the Savior of us all. It could mean that. But there's a third that it can also mean. The Greek word for saved, sozo, S-O-Z-O, has at least nine different usages in the New Testament. One of those used by Jesus and Paul means restoration to wholeness, a healing of what was broken. So in the context of 1 Timothy, a woman now who, unlike Eve, who submits to her husband and church authority out of reverence for God's design and who lives with godly character evidenced by her continued demonstration of faith, love, holiness, and propriety, can have the joy of experiencing being part of God's restored order and design. When she has children and a family that saves her, in other words, makes her a part of what God is restoring that was broken in the garden. What was broken and lost in the garden can now be saved, restored through a woman who lives to fulfill God's design by living a godly life for the praise of his glory. That word saved is what that means. So ladies, when you decide you're going to surrender to God's design rather than listen to the world... God said, you can be a part of helping to restore what was broken in the garden in a marriage that looks like his design and will be used by God in the fulfillment of that full restoration in Revelation 22. What was lost in the garden will be restored in the garden again. Now, ladies, this doesn't mean you have to be married to be a part of this. It doesn't mean you have to have children to be a part of this doesn't mean you have to be perfect. That's why Paul said the important thing is that they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. When a woman is married, when she has children, she has a part in demonstrating the restored order of God's design when she lives like this. But if a woman lives with faith, love, holiness, and propriety, she herself is a godly woman that God is now using to demonstrate that restored order in a woman and a man by living out a godly life. For the praise of his glory. That's why women today need to understand that what they're living, the choices they're making, are bigger than they are. And ladies, on this Mother's Day, I just want you to know this. The world has a mission and a message for you that is not from God. God has a mission and a message for us that is from him. And if women will learn more and more of what God is saying, not this stuff that women have to be equal with men. You already are. Yes, we need to do more to help make sure they're paid the same and do things for equal jobs and all of that stuff. I'm, I'm not against all of that. Neither is the Bible. In fact, the Bible done more to elevate the role of women in the world than any other teaching when it's properly understood. But the fact of the matter is this. When when you believe the gospel and God comes into your life, you can be a part of God's great blessing by your willingness to be more concerned with the godly character God's producing than what you're wearing on the outside to send a message to the world. The outside needs to match the inside. And when you are more concerned with fulfilling God's design rather than the world's design, every woman who lives with faith, love, holiness, and propriety can be a part of an instrument that God is using to restore what was broken at the fall. And ladies, if you need any more significance to being a mom or a wife or a woman, you won't find any more than that. Betty Ferdinand got it wrong. God got it right. And the more we follow his design, the greater joy and satisfaction, the greater glory for God, the greater joy for us. Father, thank you for this time today. Thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you are doing. And I pray you'll encourage these ladies today. It's so hard being a mom. It's hard being a woman in a world that keeps running them down. But I'm praying today, God, in Jesus' name that you'll give them a day where they know they are loved where godly women matter and you're still using them to make a difference in the world. And I thank you for them, God, in Jesus' name, amen.